It's time for the two Johnnies again. We haven't been around for a while, but we're back, we're ready, and we're raring to go. Let's do it. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. If my sound isn't as good as it should be, my computer is having a moment and has decided my normal microphone is not up to standard, so it won't register it, which is great. So I'm using my uh, laptop microphone. I hope it's good enough and adequate enough. I'm back here with Johnny Wilkinson. Johnny, it's lovely to speak to you. We haven't spoken for a while. Hello, John. How's things? Uh, But I hear you've got a dodgy cruciate ligament. Yeah, managed to twang it refereeing at the weekend. Um, They obviously weren't happy with my decision, so I got whacked in the side of an ear and I'm wearing a cricket splint and I've got a lovely appointment coming up for the fracture clinic. But hopefully that's not going to stop us tonight because I can sit still and do absolutely nothing. It's nice to talk to you again, buddy. How are you generally? Yeah, really well. Just um, busy as hell, as I'm sure you are by the looks of things. But uh, yeah, it's been a very busy time. All sorts going on. We're all getting ready for IFAD. Uh, looking forward to that, seeing you out there and all that stuff. I think that's going to be an extremely exciting meeting, all the stuff we have planned. Excuse the frog in my throat. Um, and what else is going on? State of the art I can't do anymore, which is a shame, but hey-ho, I'm sure you'll have a lovely time there. And lots of poker stuff going on, lots of ultrasound teaching and something exciting, new development-wise, I'll talk to you about just at the end, but you already know about this. Okay. Ultrasound Academy. Yeah, okay, awesome. All right, well, um, we'll crack on. Um, this is uh, Johnny and I. Johnny, uh, for those of you that haven't joined us before, um, trolls the internet, as do I do, and Twitter and all the other social media to find areas of interest. And then he summarizes it on his blog, which is criticalcarenorthampton.com. Uh, very good resource. Highly recommend you going there and having a read. But uh, this is the audio version for those of you that are running or you're in your car or you're walking your dog. So, Johnny, tell me what's been happening out there. Right, yeah, loads going on. Um, so as I mentioned, IFAD, that's me a cracking meeting. I can't wait to uh, get out there to Antwerp to uh, meet everybody and see what's going on. There really is a heap of stuff going on there. If you don't, if you haven't already, get a chance to look at the program. Links on the blog, links on John's site, and everything else. But we're affiliated now to them. Feel quite privileged as you are on your site, John. But uh, there are various uh, phone resources and websites affiliated to them now. So. Uh, we're lucky enough to be on there, which is a great privilege. So what have we picked up? Busy blog this time, and I'm in the process of doing another one as we speak. But I thought that uh, we should link in to the Journal of Intensive Care Society, the JICS, as it's well known as, because uh, our good friend Shagan is uh, the digital editor for them. And um, they are now PubMed listed, which is very exciting. So what we thought we'd do is each release of the JICS, you will see it on Critical Care Northampton. If you click on there, you'll see there is quite a lot of quite tasty stuff on there. And there's uh, Jonathan Handy, who's their editor. I believe he's outgoing soon. He's a fabulous guy. Very, very pleasant chap to speak to. Um, and he's done a nice... Uh, uh, he does his usual intro in the JICS about what's coming up and things. But if you scroll down there, there are heaps of things that are really interesting to read. A good one on the oxygen therapy and the Goldilocks principle. Now, I've used this before, this term in a publication we did some time ago. It's getting it right, <clears throat> just right, etc. And uh, this article is, uh, it's got Mike Grocott in, and as you know, he's he's very into uh, his sort of outdoors medicine, climbing up Everest and being a lunatic and all that stuff. But uh, he does some very interesting physiological chats, so there's some good stuff in that plough your way down but they always have some very good case reports some good reviews and so forth so i do recommend you uh 
wade your way through the jicks. And when I say wade your way through, it is a very easy palatable read. Um, so there shouldn't it should be minimal wading. But as I say, featured on our site each time it's out. So do have a look at that. The next thing down here, and it's of interest to all of us, is uh, all about um, fluid as ever, minefield. Mm. Now, you will notice just above those care bundles again section, I'm having a big problem getting access to uh, any of the Biomed Central stuff because occasionally the links just fail. I don't know what that is with anyone else's experience that only clicking. Mm. But that link doesn't work, I'll fix it. So we're going to go on to the balanced crystalloids versus saline for non-critically-ill adults in the ED. Now, this paper immediately struck me <clears throat> and I had a look and thought, Crikey, here's another bold statement coming up, as they always are, which is best? Well, we never know. So this paper here uh, was attempting to compare two different types of fluids, simply saline when you come into the ED versus a balanced crystalloid. And they're using, I think it was plasmalite in this, in this case, plasmalite A. Uh, and they're looking at to see whether your outcome later on through hospital was better if you received one or the other. And they're looking at very strange surrogate endpoints was the thing here, uh, because it was a 16-month trial. They accrued 13,347 patients that were enrolled into the trial. So that's a vast number of people. So initially I thought, well, great, masses of patients. We're going to get some good results here. However, as ever, there are problems. Uh, they they looked at a pretty equal spread, actually. I think it was about 490 in each arm, something of that ilk. Um, and the results showed, well... What they're saying here is very little difference, but the, the surrogate endpoints were lower incidence of MAKE30, so that's a form of renal failure. It's major adverse kidney events at 30 days, MAKE30. They're looking at whether the fluid choice had a, an impact on that. Hospital-free days, the number of days alive out of the hospital at today, 28. Um, uh, so those were the sort of endpoints, and they're saying defined as the composite of death, new renal replacement therapy, and persistent creatinine elevation over 200% of baseline. So those those endpoints people have commented on, they're a slightly odd thing to choose. And also, interestingly, if you look, these very minimal volumes of fluid. So it was about 1.1 litres. So that ain't much fluid. So how is that really going to have an influence later on down the line? I think it's a very bold statement to make that such a small quantity of fluid can have such a vast effect on what happens later on in hospital as far as outcome goes. The conclusion really is there's very little difference in either, surprise. But down further down the line, they sort of say, well, actually, <clears throat> using balanced crystalloids rather than saline for IV fluid administration in the ED might reduce incidence of death, new renal replacement therapy, or persistent renal dysfunction later on. So huge bold statements, too little fluid used, massive numbers, yeah, but too little fluid used, and I think they're making very bold statements there. So interesting chat over Twitter on that one. But there we go. It's a shame, isn't it? Because we always want to get the ideal recipe, the ideal fluid. It ain't happening and it never will. I think it's all down to us. It'd be it? interesting to talk to the authors about why they decided on those endpoints in particular as well. I'm sure they probably try and justify it in the paper, but it'd be nice to actually speak to them and say... Yeah, well, it's, it's worth having a dig through the paper. But I mean, you know, as we all know, reading abstracts and stuff, you've got to be damn careful yeah. because yeah. they can put some bold stuff out then. You could make a big mistake at the end of the day, changing your practice yeah. just on those alone. So there's there's a warning, people. I'm not telling all these intelligent guys who are listening to this podcast to suck eggs or anything, but uh, moving on. So um, sepsis in all its glory. I've, I've picked a sort of top blog section here. Uh, and within this is uh, a lovely one from MCRIT. They're a very, very active site. But if you look at that, they've got all sorts of lovely resources 
all about sepsis. You could spend a week reading this because they've got links about early initiation of vasopressors, peripheral vasopressors, MTIVC and LVs, does that matter? Understanding lactate, you know, the list goes on. So fair play to them for uh, for actually putting this together because it's a fabulous mm. resource. And I think if you plough your way through this, you'd know pretty much everything there is to know about the controversies in the management of sepsis and so forth. So do have a look at that. And well done to, to Pumcrit, Mcrit, because uh, they do, do some fabulous yeah, stuff. Uh, quite envious of the things they produce. I mean, I don't know if they have the time, half, yeah. half of them. But there we are. Um, same with you, John, with all your stuff, frankly. I don't know, yeah. I don't know how you do it, really. I don't have the time. I just create more hours in the day somehow. I'm not quite sure. I know. I know. You must have sort of membranes growing over your eyes and some form of bat. Um, next thing here. Now, have you heard of the Lazarus effect or the Lazarus phenomenon, should we say? This is an ancient biblical thing, whether you believe in all that sort of stuff or not. Um, but Lazarus was a character who rose from the dead, effectively. So I've put a bit of a cheeky slide on there, and there is a religious connotation to it. But there's a mummified gentleman who appears to be getting up, as if he's sort of getting up for his morning tea, really. And there's Jesus at the end of the cave that he's stuck in. But he's rising from the dead. Now, the whole thing about the Lazarus phenomenon is it's something that you just do not want to ever happen to you. That is, a patient you may have declared as dead actually not being dead. So <clears throat> they're talking about this now and it's becoming a much bigger thing. When we have to declare someone on the unit, for example, you should actually be waiting 10 minutes to actually make sure they have passed away. So that's quite scary because there is an implication here that some patients may not be dead when you think they are. And I mean, the worst thing ever would be a patient sits up and in fact says, oh, hello, I'm sort of here still you've just declared me dead so the Lazarus phenomenon is all about that and it's linked with the biblical stuff from years and years thousands of years ago <clears throat> what it is I think we've got to start thinking about confirming death using good old pocus have a look with your echo probe because when patients have passed away you've declared them audibly via stethoscope and palpable pulse business they may actually have some myocardial activity going on there. And there have been some reported cases, which is very scary. So the key to this is probably pop your probe on there. Make sure the heart is doing nothing. Then you can probably declare them as definitely passed away and dead if there is no myocardial activity to see. But that's very scary, actually. Uh, it's I never like happened the, to uh, me. But... I like the quote um, that they do on the, the page as well. Lazarus equals ultimate Rosk, and there's a quote from John eleven thirty nine. Lord, by this time he's thinking, for he has been dead four days. I don't think we can leave him for four days, can we, Tori Shaw? Well, I don't think so. I mean, obviously we haven't got time to do that, but I mean, someone who's been declared dead and four days later sits up, that that would be terrible, wouldn't it? But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is fairly frightening, this. So have a read of that. I, just, I quite like adding some of these quirky things in from time to time because, um, you know, I think I think it's uh, it's quite interesting, really, similar yeah. to the stuff we did on Valsalva and so forth previously. Yeah. Um, next thing, we're moving on down to the good old bottom line, and Emma Ridley's done a beautiful piece here on the EAT ICU trial. And I do love these uh, these study titles. But this one, again, it's all into nutrition. Uh, to me, nutrition is very much like IV fluid because no one knows what the right thing to do is, when to give it, when to, you know, when to start, when to stop, all that sort of stuff. So the hope was, again, the early girl directed nutrition versus standard of care in adult intensive care patients would tell us whether jumping in with 
early goal-directed nutrition. That's the perfect calorific intake and protein requirement delivered to your patients early versus standard of care, which is whatever we do normally on the unit. The thought was, well, maybe that would be better. So what they did, they randomised patients. It was a single-centre trial list, by the way. They randomised patients to receive the early goal-directed arm, which was a very sort of clever and complicated uh, calorimetric uh, measurement uh, randomization every other day uh, of nutritional input. And they looked at 24-hour urinary urea excretion, i.e. nitrogen use, versus the other guys who just had the normal nutrition and didn't have much else done to them. And of course, the hope was that delivering this perfect, you know, gold standard nutrition nice and early to these guys would improve outcome. Uh, have a guess. <laughs> no difference. No. The early goal-directed nutrition strategy resulted in greater energy and protein delivery, tick that box, mm-hmm. uh, compared to the standard, but there's no difference observed in uh, the calorimetric scores uh, at six months or any other clinically important outcomes. Sorry, not the calorimetric scores. This is their, what I mean to say is that it's a PSC score. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of their, their physical quality of life at six months. There's actually no difference. So really, again, we're a bit stuck on that. And I remember uh, the last, uh, the Oxford ICS, FFICM exam course I was teaching on and vivering on. We had a nutrition section in there. And, it, and in fairness, the candidates seemed to know a lot about it, but it was very disappointing because everyone just kept saying, there's this trial, there's that trial, Epinac, and there's this one now and that one, and there's no difference in any of them. So you just think, well, what do we need to do? No idea. But I think at the end of the day, we've got to provide nutrition. We don't have to jump in there too early. I Immediately, we can wait for a few days, possibly. But as long as we give it, it's probably okay for them. But I don't think we need to get all farty about perfect nitrogen input and output and all this business. No. Because clearly it makes no difference, to be honest. Yeah. So the dietitians are still banging their heads on brick walls, as are we, I think, to be honest with you. But um, a Nutrix scoring. Do your guys do a Nutrix score on all the patients on the ward round? Um, ours I believe the uh, dietitian scores them. <laughs> um, somehow, I'm not absolutely sure what scoring system she uses. No, if well, I'm I think- honest. I, I, you see, I've been asking a lot on the ward rounds now, have we done a nutrition score on this patient? And you're usually met with a sort of flat line. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we should all be doing a Nutrix score, and we'll put that onto the, the site within the medical calculator section. It's pretty complicated, and to be quite honest, it would take most of the ward round uh, alone just to do that on one patient. Uh, so we, we do need to be paying far more attention to this. But having said that, we have to pay more attention to it, yet no trial's shown there's much difference. So, you know, yeah. it's a very difficult thing to come to terms with and to know what to do with, frankly. So there we go. To me at the moment, um, Johnny, my, my first aim is just to try and ensure that the patients have their 24-hour delivery uh, because my bigger concern is that you get a lot of patients with various interruptions don't get their full 24 hours delivery of food. Now, whether that's making a difference or not, I don't know. But surely, um, just to make sure that they get what they're meant to be getting, probably more. Do you mean uninterrupted feed? Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, or if it's or if it is interrupted, you then adjust your hourly rate to take to compensate for that. So you don't, if you interrupt it and you were going at 80 mils an hour, you don't interrupt it for three hours and then continue at 80 mils an hour. You take up the difference that you you you, you dropped yeah, and your rate absolutely. increases for a few hours. Well, I, I, you know, speaking from. From our angle, particularly from mine, sorry, should I say, not our unit. I don't want to tar them with the wrong brush, but I think it's poorly done uh, a lot of the time. And I think um, 
we, we really do need dietitians. They're so important on the units because there are times we just do not have time to be looking at this every single time we see a patient. There's so many other things going on, um, but it is so damn important. So we mustn't yeah, forget I'm nutrition. Yeah, I'm hoping our dietitian is going to start joining us on the uh, drug round. Uh, sorry, the, yeah. the ward round twice. Yeah, well, fingers crossed, day, but let us know if it does. That'd be interesting to hear about. Um, then there's Dr. Smith's. Uh, I do love yep. uh, their stuff because... You know, ECGs are so complex when you actually read into them properly. There are so many things and very, very subtle minutiae you can pick things up from. And the case I've put on here, wow, this is a whacker, this one, because basically there's every single type of arrhythmia bundled within this one case report. So do have a look. It'll take you a while. Um, but sometimes it makes you want to go back to basics and check whether your knowledge on ECGs really is as good as you think it is. Because when you look at this, crikey, it's scary. But uh, yeah, nice one to read and just, just brush mm. up on. The next thing was a very simple little blog that's come out from uh, uh, Dr. Rishi, who um, essentially is a, is a, he's a cardiothoracic anesthesiology chap who's very interested in um, critical care and he's doing clinical fellowship at the moment. But he's got a nice blog. And this discusses when and where is the patient suitable to have the tube pulled out on the unit. Now, if you scroll down, you'll notice you can literally move your finger up the mouse and you're down to the bottom and you're finished. Well, that's cracking because a lot of blogs and things can get very complicated. You can be scrolling down, down and down. You're still not at the end and you think, crikey, I haven't got time to read this. But this is quite a simple A, B, C, D, E approach to deciding whether your patient's suitable for extubation. So do have a look. It's, um, it's rather nice. I think it would be a great one for very junior yeah. trainees to look at some of the new critical care practitioners coming through training and so forth. A very useful thing to see. I don't know if you've looked, but... Um... Yeah, yeah. I will, um, what I'll do is I'll highlight that to the um, the Facebook page of the... Yeah, I think it's a great one. So do, do look at that. And then we're moving on to the complexities of hematology. You know, shock, horror, crikey, hematology. You just get a sort of feeling of dread in your stomach uh, when, a, when A, a patient comes up. Uh, with a hematological problem and or oncological problem, but uh, the uh, now it's a difficult one. Is this Canadian? I can never pronounce them properly, but they're a great group. But what they do is a very interactive um, question set. You can click on the arrow, think about the question first, click the arrow, and you get the answer, which I think is a very nice way to learn and a very nice way to uh, teach other people, in fact. But they go into uh, everything you need to know more or less on uh, anemia, polycythemia and white blood cell disorders. That's a hell of a thing to go through in one mm. tutorial, but they do. And it's structured beautifully, like you say, isn't it? You know, you can uh, you can open and close the, the different questions. So there's a massive amount of information on there, yeah, actually, there is. isn't there? Because you, know, you got, look initially. We're going all the way down to 27 headings, and then there's another eight subheadings underneath that as well. So, wow. That's, it that's is, incredible. actually. And um, I'd quite like to learn how to do that sort of thing on our blog, and I'm sure you already know, but uh, doing the drop-down question reveal thing is quite a good way to do it. Plugins. Plugins, Johnny. <clears throat> Plugins. Well, I think so. And I think uh, it's probably something I just haven't discovered within our um, within our site yet, so maybe I'll have a dig around for that. But plugins are a great thing at times, aren't they? And I think they, they exemplify yeah. that. So the next one... Um, Again, it's, uh, it's all about lung protective ventilation, but they're initiating this in the ED, the LOVE ED or LOVED trial, which is a quasi-experimental before and after trial uh, done. This is the Annals of Emergency Medicine 2017. And they're evaluating the e efficacy of emergency department-based lung protective ventilation protocols 
So as soon as they come in, get them on the six mils per kilo ARDS net style uh, ventilation set and uh, have a look later, were they any better? Now, this kind of rings the same bell as the IV fluids thing because if you think about this, the patients are not usually in ED for much longer than four hours. I don't know what it's like in the USA, but the, the UK have got a four-hour target, haven't they? Get them out by that point. So <clears throat> anything that's done in REDs here certainly would be done within a four-hour period. So they're very short, sharp interventions. And I still struggle to get my head around the fact that such a short, sharp intervention that early on can have a major difference on outcome later. So I'm always coming into this with my pint glass half empty. However, they're saying that they don't make a very bold conclusion like the previous fluid paper we discussed did. They're saying that implementing mechanical ventilation protocol in the ED is very feasible and may be associated with improvements in outcome later on. But this is a big maybe thing because it's, I think it's too early if I'm honest, but there you go. But it's an interesting one to read to see what people are doing. And the ED is a great place to start a research trial off because, of course, that's where patients start their journey when they're critically ill, isn't it? Mainly, uh, bar the inpatients that we get on the unit, obviously. But uh, again, lung protective ventilation, it's popular. There's no other way around it. Although there's a lot of chat these days going on about shear stresses and plateau pressures being of major importance rather than top pressures or tidal volume limitation in fact so um, you'll be hearing loads about that in the meetings you're, you're circulating your way around in due course I'm sure so I would imagine yeah plateau pressures are the key uh, another sort of hematological thing but I never knew platelets had so many functions and or were in fact the sort of hub of where it's at within the bloodstream because clearly this article here platelets and multi-organ failure and sepsis very very long article but crikey it's interesting to just have a flick through because it appears platelets are the sort of signalers of the blood of the uh of the hematological system particularly in critical illness and they interact with neutrophils they interact with every single other modality uh, within within the bloodstream and particularly when things are going wrong, the interleukin system and things in sepsis, they have a very interesting link. And you'll have noticed in your septic patients, you'll see platelet levels of 699 or there'll be another patient next to you who's septic with a platelet level of 50. So they, it, I think there's a very interesting genetic link in the behaviour of platelets um, and it's a very interpersonal thing from patient to patient as to what happens couple of twins, one gets pneumonia and then gets sepsis from it and passes away. Twin B gets pneumonia, gets better. We don't know why. And they're genetically the same. So I think the same thing goes for for our hematological systems and what happens to us in sepsis. That's an interesting one to look at. And now we're getting on some nice chunky pocus stuff. You'll notice from now on, most of it goes into pocus because that's one of my obsessions, as you know. Yes. Um, but there's a lovely one from Sonospot. And it's just reiterating how to tell a pleural effusion from a pericardial effusion. And for me, the key to this is a good long axis view of the heart. And if you can see fluid that's in between the abdominal aorta, the circle on the screen below your long axis view, if it's in between that and the base of the heart, that's pericardial. If the fluid is outside of that, so you've got your circle of aorta, and down at the bottom of the screen, you can see blackness and fluid. That's probably going to be pleural fluid. But of course, we change our views and have a little look around. And there's so much more focus now on chest ultrasound. It's becoming a huge thing now. And I've certainly got my teeth into this a lot more with acoustic accreditation. 
uh, and we're teaching our physios now to do this at the bedside because frankly if they can walk around with a portable ultrasound and scan chest it's much better than them telling us on every patient the breath sounds are harsh and they've got creps well well that's lovely and it's very useful but it but doesn't tell us that. exactly exactly that's it the nail on the head they all have that because there's a ventilator blowing gas in and out it's noisy and they're all septic and ill they've got ARDS acute lung injury pneumonia and all the rest of it so let's teach our physios to do portable lung ultrasound and we're starting off uh the trail of that in Northampton and Simon Hayward's already got his teeth well into that and he does some great stuff so uh Sono Physio there's a plug for you again but have a, do have a look at the article there next we move on to um Philips now this is not a plug for Philips but they do do some fabulous um little sort of tutorial booklets if you like the sort of interactive booklets on um how to do various different types of ultrasound so they've got a lovely one all about that point of care lung ultrasound and you can flick your way through the booklet and there's interactive videos in the middle. That's excellent, isn't it? I'm just looking at that now. Yes, that's really, really good. I think that's something I might highlight on the um, the Facebook vlog blast that I started doing as well because visually that looks Yeah, really no, dude, because um, I think people will find it very useful. They, they've done everything. There's, um, there's, there's all the different cardiac views, there's lung ultrasound, there's abdominal ultrasound, there's all kinds of things to... Uh, to have a good flick through but it you know it, it isn't a gratuitous plug for them or anything it was just i wanted to point it out because um i think it's a, i think it's a very nice one and before i forget john on the blog here if you look at uh, the video of the modified valsalva maneuver and svt the revert trial yeah. we featured this yeah. some time ago but i've just put the video on because i thought it was a very nice one to look at and i think um, it shows it done properly doesn't it because i've looked at this before i actually saw this being done um, in the a and e where i work and the, it was a very much modified technique of this technique which i thought was being done quite poorly they didn't do it as properly as it should be and I've seen it done yeah. really well. It works. Yeah, well, it does. Clearly, it does because I think that it was something like, and I forget the exact stats, and I apologise if I'm wrong here. It was something like a forty-seven percent reversion yeah. with the modified yeah. manoeuvre versus seventeen. So you know, um, that this is a good uh, intervention to do and to modify. So please do look at the modified Valsalva manoeuvre because we could eminently do this on ITU. Yeah. Uh, if I'm honest, because if you think about it, if someone's gone into an SVT, you could try them on a ventilator in respiratory hold and do the same Absolutely. thing, then release Absolutely. that, and they've got the same. Yeah. It's the same yeah. effect, isn't it, physiologically? So I thought that was great. And then just move down to um, now. Apologies for the swear word here, uh, but it, it which bloody one I've put because uh, there is so much going on about portable and or wireless uh, POCUS portable ultrasound devices. Mm. Um, and um, you may have noticed uh, that I've talked a lot about the Butterfly IQ. This is going to be one of the hugest things that hits the POCUS community and already has done, in fact, in the US. It's being released in the UK and Europe probably in the spring. You can get yourself on the waiting list for those. And again, I'm not trying to advertise Butterfly IQ. I just think it's an extremely interesting concept, the way you can plug uh, a chip software based or it's chip technology it's all in the probe you plug it into the lightning port on your your iphone or apple based device and i'm sure there are adapters for the android based devices too and there it is it's on your screen it's all there in one probe and it's sub 2k sub 2000 so that is yeah. cheap and for me a probe that has the ability to have low and high frequencies, linear phased array, and, and so forth and so on. It's all there in one probe, so I'd be so interested. I'm trying desperately to get them to come out to IFAD to see us so we can have a play okay. with it there. Uh, okay. So that's 
Butterfly IQ, and they may be out, John, actually. I'm, I haven't heard yet, but I'm just badgering them on Twitter, as yeah. you may have seen. Yeah. <laughs> it's been all over there. And then I've just featured a video about the 10 best portable ultrasound devices. It's a year old, though, so some of this technology is newer. They've got the Philips Lumify on there, the good old GE uh, V-Scans there, but only the Uniprobe one, but you'll notice I put a video down below of the DP, which is the one I carry around and use on my ITU every day and around the wards and any and all sorts is a great device so um so so do do have a look at those and get to grips with what's what and where's where and all that stuff um what else have we got on here ultrasound gel love their site they've got a lovely little uh, section about um not changing your practice based on abstracts alone it, there's things about DVT scanning, uh, there's things about renal resistive indexes and all kinds of other quite interesting things but what they're stating here is just be careful um, there are lots of exciting headline abstracts out there, but do be careful you don't get overexcited. We can all get excited about POCUS, but sometimes POCUS doesn't win the race, other things do. So do look at their sort of poster, because it's, it's going on about three different things that you need to be careful over. So have a check of that. Now, I can't plug this enough. The POCUS Atlas, and I'll say it again, the POCUS Atlas, you must check this out, because now on there, it is starting to be populated by people's um, images and um, they've got all sorts on there. You can have a good dig through this, literally look at images on the screen in front of you. I think it's uh, flash-based stuff. But you could look at uh, right-sided heart failures, reduced ejection fraction pictures, all sorts of strange pathologies bobbing around in the atria and around the heart, tamponades, this, that and the other. Um, I think it's a fabulous resource and I think we should all contribute to uh, the POCUS yeah. Atlas if we can. Um, a fabulous site, loads going on and it's exactly what you want to look at. So well done to them. Um, that, that is a plug for the POCUS Atlas. Uh, I don't know if you're yeah. aware of that, but there you go. Please dig into that and I've put a, a link on our site into the POCUS Atlas. So if you know anyone, John, do tell them to Hello. upload their images to that. I think Adrian Wong's all over it and, the, yeah. and various other people. So there we go, Pokus Atlas. And we're getting towards the end now, but we've got um, practice and implications of finding fluid during point-of-care ultrasonography here. Now, I've talked about this on Twitter. I think we need to be getting to our medical students at med school, portable ultrasound devices, and we should be teaching them to use those. I'm not saying get rid of the stethoscopes because that, that would be absolute sacrilege, but why not teach them in med school how to use portable ultrasound They've got to grips with it in med school. They can take it further when they become more senior when they're practicing because we're not very good at this in the UK and I don't really know anywhere that does this now. So this is part of our idea with our academy at Northampton General. We're going to try and link in with the university and see if we can get some of the medical students up to speed with this because it's very important. Um, have you have you ever spoken to... Oh, her name's Jen. She's a... She is an American girl. Is it Jen? We'll talk about this after the podcast, actually, because there's a girl I spoke to on one of my uh, podcasts who uh, was setting up regular um, POCUS-type schools, um, uh, learning schools within her hospital mm. uh, for people to drop in and out of, and she had a system, um, and she had lots of good resources. But we'll maybe talk, I'll perhaps put the links to, the, to that in the show notes for this podcast episode. Yeah, that would be great. Was she, was she US or UK? She was US. 
Yeah, you see, I think they've really got their head screwed on in the US with this because they're doing it now. And I think we, I really do think we need to jump on this bandwagon because um, I think it's very important. I think we're we're leaving our students behind somewhat. And you'll notice on that uh, video I've uh, attached of the of the uh, butterfly IQ, they have medical students talking about how good the images are on it and this and the other. They're already doing it there, so we yeah. need to do this. So there yeah. you go. But um, that's there. So this this is an article saying that um, medical students can be taught how to pick up certain things on ultrasound pretty damn quickly. Yeah. Very useful. Um, then you'll notice further down the site is a sort of Twitter troll. I've attached all sorts of things uh, from various different people about what, what's been going on. There's a lovely video there from um, um, Chris Kelly with a real-time ultrasound, uh, sorry, ultrasound, I'm obsessed, MRI image of somebody bending, flexing and extending the neck. And you can see what happens to the airway. And I've attached that on. It's very interesting to see. I saw this on Twitter earlier because so, it's gone on there as well, hasn't it? Like, yeah, it's on so, Twitter. But, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a great thing. And I was showing Chris Froek at our place, who who's uh, Mr. Das. He was uh, Das president, and he's very well spoken on uh, all things to do with airway. Mm -hmm. Just showing him, and he was fascinated by it because he, he, I don't think he'd seen anything like this before. Right. So I said, you know, Froek, you want to check this out because this is, uh, this is right up your alley. And he was fascinated seeing that. So there we go. Loads of videos from the Osmosis crew. You must check their stuff out. They are absolutely oh, no, fabulous no, no. teachers. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable what they've done. Yeah. But I just put a series of little snips on there, and I have featured a lot of their videos within our resource section on our site because I think they're just unbelievable. Um, now, I made a mistake here. There's one that's supposed to be on hyponatremia, but if you open it, it's to do with A, B, C, D, E, but it's still interesting, but I'll, I'll attach the correct one, so okay. that's an error. Loads on Twitter. Quite a bit from Sean McDermott, who's coming out to IFAD with us. He's a great guy, really interesting man. He's um, talking a lot and teaching a lot about pokers in the ED. Uh, and then I've got various shots of interesting ejection fractions, i.e. non-existent ones. But if you have a look, there are some phenomenal, I can't believe these people are walking around in the community with ejection fractions like this style images. Um which people have, have kindly posted on all anonymized, etc. So do have a flick down those. Um what else have we got? Lots about different conferences and people's Twitter. I do like screenshots attached to tweets. I think that's a great thing. People mm. are doing this. And I must encourage people to do that because it teaches everybody else. And an image uh, speaks a thousand words sometimes. So do put more of those on your tweets, guys. Um, getting to the bottom, what else have I highlighted here? Yeah, various fabulous pocus images that I would not want to see on any of my patients. Those <laughs> tamponades and things like that, yeah, which was a bit of a worry. And I just thought I'd attach something from Nitin Aurora. Great guy. I've got a lot of time for Nitin. He's um, done a sort of uh, case series of outcomes of haematology patients admitted to the critical care. Now, this is a bugbear of mine. I get uh, a lump in my throat when a hemonc consultant rings and has a chat about a patient. Because you often think to yourself, crikey, these guys are the sickest of the sick. They've had some awful chemotherapy. And of course, their outcome's going to be fine if the chemo works, which is what you will be sold. Of course, you would be sold that. However, I always have uh, my pint glass extremely a quarter empty with a lot of these patients because usually the point where you have to intubate them, 
the outcome is poor. And Nitin's team have highlighted this, um, quoting mortality of 52.3% in their case series and up to 66% in some. Now, th- this is a huge worry, and, and increasingly so, John, because we're using more and more advanced chemo, more and more advanced different types of um, cell lineage techniques, irradiation, all sorts of stuff. So we're going to be seeing more and more of these guys who've had this therapy where things have gone wrong as a result of therapy coming up to yeah. us. Yeah. And it's very difficult to make the judgment call that enough is enough, doing more is doing less, etc. and escalation isn't the key. Um, because, you know, the outcomes... Let, let, we all know that there are good outcomes in a certain number of patients and you can't crystal ball read and say, this patient will pass away, this patient will die, their outcome will be poor. But his case series certainly is not convincing me otherwise. And uh, he's presenting a load at the state of the art where they've got an increased number from this one originally. So they did two years here. They've got a load more data. So do look out for Nitin's poster on that because I think it's certainly an area that's very yeah. contentious. Yeah. But there we are. Enough said on that. And and really, that's uh, that's the that's to the end of the blog. Um, so there's so much going on. And it's lovely to talk to you and communicate all these things to you because it just shows that we've both got... Uh, a bit of a passion for this. There's so much yeah. going on there, uh, and one of yeah. our regs this week came to me because we've got a we've built the team up on on the blog now. There's quite a number of people now involved with uh, with critical care in Northampton, which I'm very pleased with. Um, but one of the regs came up. He's a respiratory reg. He's ST8 now, very senior, and he said, you know, I've noticed I've been looking at your blog a lot more now, and he said, do you think phone med is where it's at now? Is this what I should know more about? And I said. I said, absolutely, you know, more and more so in interviews for consultant posts, interviews for any post for that matter, uh, finding out a vast amount of evidence in such a short space of time. I think it's absolutely the way forward. And he said, do you think journals are going to die out soon? I said, well, I wouldn't want to make a bold statement. Yes, because no, they won't. And he said, but what about the grey evidence out there? How do you know what's what? And I said, well, you know, ultimately you don't. And that's the thing. I think it, I think looking at phone med improves your uh, critiquing ability. It improves your links with people, your networking with people. And also it improves your knowledge of what is possibly right and what is possibly wrong. So, you know, I think you could go in there and make the wrong decisions on what evidence is correct and what isn't. But equally, I think you become more of an expert using it than, than not these days. Yeah, what do you I think, think if nothing else, what you do become is more aware of what's going on out there. You become more aware of yeah. the changes that are happening. You become aware of them more quickly. Uh, you have your finger on the pulse. Um, and I think if nothing else, there is an advantage in that. Yes, there's a lot of crap to siphon through. Um, yes, it's a, bit, a little bit like taking a drink from a fire hydrant. Sometimes you've got so much stuff coming at you, you don't know where to go. Or, but there are, but you, you, if you, with, with good experience, you find your own way to filter the stuff that you're interested in. You know, it's like you and I, Johnny. We love the poker stuff, so we look at poker stuff. There's other people who look at other aspects of uh, critical care that they're interested in, and you learn to filter the things that you're interested in. You follow the right people. And you'll follow people who are interested in the same things as you are, which is why you and I um, ended up getting together. Um, and, you know, it's not, Absolutely. I've always said this, it's not who you follow in, in, in Twitter, it's what you follow. Find out what you're interested in and then go and follow those people because they're interested in the same thing. So it's not, it's not uh, the bow itself, it's another string to your bow. I would never say FOMED is the be-all and end-all, but I think these days if you're no, in medicine and you're absolutely. ignoring FOMED, you're missing a trick. Simple as that. I think 
Absolutely. I think you're right. And I think, as I've said to many people before, and we'll be talking about this in the big social media workshop we're going to be holding at IFAD, uh, I think that in order to find out the same amount of information you could sit on a train with Twitter in an hour, you would need to fill that entire train with journals for the equivalent amount of reading. It's a phenomenal thing. Um, And just before we go, as you know about, uh, I'm sort of heading up a a POCUS point of care ultrasound academy within our trust. Now we had the first meeting on Friday and we've had so much interest. I mean, I literally put the advert out who would like to be a member of this, this group absolutely flooded with, uh, with requests. And uh, in fact, mostly consultants initially, but we've got a hell of a, a hell of a string of people involved from most specialties in the hospital. So it does show you that, this is the way forward. Everybody's very interested and indeed very curious as to what, what it's all about. So we talked about all sorts of stuff. Uh, in the main, where point of care ultrasound is useful in the trust, how to advance it, how to help people who are interested in it, what courses and accreditation you need to do, um, and all kinds of other different things. So it's been a very exciting development, actually, which... Um, which I'm going to advertise a lot more about. Been speaking to a few people about cross collaboration to do with Point of Care Ultrasound Academy as well. So I think each trust soon will probably have a group such as this, you know, formed under their guise. So yeah, we'll we'll be telling you a lot more about that as time goes on. So do pay pay a bit of uh, keep an ear out for it, sort of thing. You um, should then go and have a look at uh, podcast thirty seven, which is the one I was talking about earlier. And this is where I speak to a lady called Jennifer Cotton. Um, who is at Sonomojo. Um, oh, I've runs, seen Sonomojo stuff, yeah. yeah, absolutely. She runs the website Sonomojo, and we talked to her because she's promoting what she called ultrasound interest groups, which is a way of developing groups that can focus on student-organised, mm. faculty-led workshops. Um, and it is American-based, but she does have a lot of experience on doing that kind of thing, so it might be worth... Uh, um, banging her up on Twitter and just seeing whether she's got any advice or whether she could uh, offer Yeah, yes, John, John, excusing the phrase you just used there, I shall yeah, do no, that. I just, I just heard myself <laughs> say that. <laughs> well, it, this is what's so good about a live podcast. We do we do uh, make a couple of little faux pas, whether it's me clearing yeah. my throat every two seconds or you well, saying perhaps, that. Perhaps make that, a slightly less formal <laughs> approach to Jennifer than that, maybe. <laughs> That was fabulous. I loved that. That'll stick in my mind. I'll be giggling about that one later. But there we go. So that's. I think that's about it from me. So um, there we are. Okay. That's okay. that's Critical Care Northampton, and that's uh, JonathanDownham.com. That's IFAD. That's Pocus, and that's everything going on Excellent. at the moment. All right. Well, you and I are going to see each other at the um, end of next week anyway. So um, I dare say. I, I dare say we'll talk to each other before that. I think there's a hangout planned for tomorrow night. I don't know whether you're going to be making that or not. Yeah, I will be there for that one, yep. So there's lots planned for that. So, so we'll, we'll have a chat there. Um, looking forward to it. Lots going on, like you say. And I hope everyone finds this useful. It's a great website, like um, Johnny says, Critical Care Northampton. Go and look at these summaries. There's a lot of good stuff out there. Um, you could spend all day staring at the internet if you want to learn stuff. It's almost pointless going to medical school these days. Oh, I didn't say that. Out loud, <laughs> did I? Yeah, indeed. Just do your <laughs> medical degree at home. Don't touch a patient. Absolutely, there you go. that's the way to do it. Okay, mate. It's, it's been lovely to talk to you. So we'll see you next time. So it's good night from me. And it's good night from him. Good night. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, Find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk. Tweet us at ccpractitioner. Find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner. 
or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes.